Welcome to another amazing week and another amazing day to listen to the weekly podcast, True Crime Edition. I mean, doesn't that just put a smile on your face? Because right now, I'm grinning from ear to ear. Anyway, I mean, do I have anything to grin about? Absolutely. Life is good. Life is good. Professional podcaster, what and what else could there be? Uh, I mean, we're going through strange times, I guess. Uh, COVID-19, uh, whatever that thing is. Jesus. Um, we got an uprising. Got an uprising of people, some demanding just plain nonsense, and then a lot have a valid and real argument. I've always felt that we've needed a, a change in law enforcement at, at the lowest levels and all the way to the top, but we definitely incarcerate, I think, at a, a very high rate as a country. I think we need to correct that. Also, I feel like over the years, somewhere, we've stopped community policing and have taken a more militant approach to our policing, and I think that's a... a, a I think that is a, what is the word, mm, wrong, the problem, it needs to change, you know, hopefully one day, we can all get on the same page, and that'd be the page of just searching for the truth, and that's what I look for when I do these podcasts, or when I talk about a certain subject, I just try to make sure I'm telling the truth, and sometimes, you can wrap my, I can wrap my opinion around it, and that's just part of why uh, you like different things, I guess. But you know, there's, there's only 16 million different true crime podcasts, and I'm inching my way. <laughs> oh Jesus, I'm inching my way up. I mean, you got to start. You got to start somewhere, right? You know, we've been doing the uh, well. Let me finish my damn soapbox and the truth. I said the truth. Be on the same page. The truth. Because it is better for 100 guilty to go free than for one innocent to be wrongly convicted or incarcerated. So I promised five episodes on Israel Keys. There's probably going to be five with maybe two bonus episodes. There's so much material. That in this book, and I'm sourcing my podcast, I want to make sure to give credit where credit is due, every bit of this material that I researched is researched, the majority of it is out of the book, American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century by Maureen Callahan. So if I say something that you disagree with nine times most of the time it's going to be you disagree with Maureen Callahan also but it's a good reference I mean it's it's it was the book was amazing I've read it twice and uh it's just uh Israel Keys I don't want to we don't want to glorify a man that took life in the manner that he took life obviously a person can take a life, whether it be in self-defense or whatever, and it be not be 
it'd be taking a life but not be murdering or, or in, in this case, the way Israel keys. We really don't know how he operated because it's strange to me that he operated so under the radar and went through so many different steps to, to not be detected. And then he kidnaps in his own backyard, uses the ATM card until they pull him over with it. It's just, that's odd to me. But he could, these urges, I believe, that that these serial killers have, I believe that some are able to control it for a certain amount of time, and some it grows so strong that they can't help themselves. So there'll probably be, on the, in this episode, I want to talk about the specifics of the confession of Israel Keys concerning the Samantha Koenig kidnapping and murder and the recovery of her body. I wanted to get that in, plus the um, Bill and Lorraine Courier murders, but I don't think it's going to happen. So, really, in this episode, we're going to talk about, basically, the exacts of the confession from Israel Keys concerning Samantha Koenig. So... When we talked last, the interrogation with Prosecutor Feldus was kind of going haywire because Israel Keys had basically just realized that he told everything that he told them for nothing, really, other than the fact he felt like that they would eventually find out anyway. So it seems like that the agents in the room were more concerned with Prosecutor Feldus getting him in line not so much with Israel Keys concerning this confession and interrogation they're doing. So, Payne, Agent Payne, Agent Bell, quickly regained control, picked up on Israel Keys' last statement about the FBI having access to everything that, that was on his computer. So, to try to make him realize that, oh, we'll, we'll try to bluff him, I guess, like they've got some evidence. So, they're basically re reiterating that they have the computers, they're going to find this, they're going to find that. And basically, Israel comes back and says, you don't need anything out of the shed that they, they collected. So they collected all the evidence out of the wrong shed. It's in the white shed, the other shed. So Israel's becoming more, more defiant, and, and the more power he had, the weaker the investigators seemed to him. Um, That bothered some of the agents. Didn't bother Felda so much. So they're wanting to get back into the timeline of Samantha's kidnapping and, and, and murder. So they needed the details, you know, so they could corroborate, make sure they had the person responsible. They can't just take his word for it. They need corroboration of the evidence. So they verified that Keyes and his 10-year-old daughter had left for the airport at 5 o'clock the next morning. They needed to know who else was involved. So Keyes, Israel Keyes begins to explain. Explains they walked around the common grounds kiosk. He, he couldn't see who was working, but he had figured it was a young woman. Um, he noticed there was no car in the parking lot, so he figured there wasn't a car. Maybe it had been dropped off. Somebody would be coming back. 
He knew that young girls were exclusively in these kiosks mainly. So, like you said, probably a boyfriend was on the way or whatever. So Keys approaches the kiosk at five minutes to eight, just before closing time. Stood at the large window. He knew that uh, there were no plexiglass, not even a screen. Put down his thermos, asked the barista for Americano. She was young, small, pretty, and alone. Samantha Koenig. So the videos can see Samantha move back and forth from the, vid the window to the espresso machine, and, the and it's just a tiny space, maybe three feet wide. And Keys begins, in his mind, silently running through his plan. There, there was a hitch. Someone was suddenly sitting in a nearby car, engine idling, watching him. It made what he wanted to do all the more challenging. Samantha handed him the Americano, and Keys pulled out his gun. This is a robbery. Samantha put her hands in the air. He could tell she was terrified. Turn off the lights. Keys told her to told her to move back and switch the lights off, which she did. Returns to the window. She didn't scream. There was a panic button. She had somehow hit it. Keys would hear it because he has the police scanner in his ear. So we wait a minute to see. Give me all the cash to register. Basic robbery at this point. Uh, she obliges there. So basically gets her down on the floor. He crawls through the window. Um, he jumps, like I said, he jumps inside. Uh, moved his headlamp. You know, the lights were off. So he's got his headlamp. Want to know where a car was. She didn't have a car, but her dad's coming. Um, but she couldn't tell if she was telling the truth or not. So basically... What he's telling is, is lining up with what the, they've seen on the surveillance. Um, so they're wanting to know what he was, Israel Keys was thinking at the time. Um, basically just that he liked her and he was a, a serial killer. But he broke his rule of committing crimes real close to home. So he leads Samantha through the parking lot. Uh, he says as he's walking to his car, he found a new Canon camera on the ground, said to be worth about $300, and he thought that was an omen of good luck. Uh, as he went down to pick it up, Samantha, Samantha feeling his distraction broke and ran. So Keys ran after her and tackled her. He stopped to pour himself. Sorry, hold on. I got. Samantha broke away as so he's bending down to pick up the camera. Keys tackles her. And they're all thinking to themselves, could that even be accurate? I mean, there in fact was witnesses to this high profile crime. And they were sitting in, there, there was vehicles in the Home Depot parking lot, there's vehicles driving by. Could someone have seen him tackle her and not said anything? He regained control of Samantha by pressing the 22 against her ribs. He's got it concealed. No one can see it. He threatened to kill her. She tried to escape again, and she believed him. Um, Keys had told Samantha to stumble around a little, lean against him like she was drunk. He then took her across Tudor Road and walked her through the Home Depot lot to his truck. 
that was parked at the IHOP. What bothers me and what is crazy is a few people were lingering around. Uh, there was a Chevy Suburban, he said, parked right in front of Key's truck. So at this point, he's relying only on the fear to keep Samantha in check. She was right here around somebody and could have yelled out, why didn't she? We'll never know. I think that she maybe thought he was going to let her go. I think she was smarter than that. He hadn't planned on doing this, I don't believe. I believe he planned on robbing because when he robbed the the kiosk, because when he got to his truck, he has clutter all in his truck, so he can't hardly he has to clean his truck up to get her in it. And she just is being watched by these strangers, just feet in front of her. And she watches him get to a Chevy and drive away. She was so close to being free. So Field is limited by his position as a prosecutor. actually did see the video, but it, this here was another strike against this trial if it ever went to trial because the video is evidence. And just compounding this mess was clear that neither the Bureau nor the Anchorage Police Department had the thought to pull the surveillance footage from every business near the kiosk. They had no idea about the witnesses at IHOP back in the truck Keys was back talking to Samantha. They could have pulled that, that footage. I'm not sure why they didn't. He was explaining to her how it was going to work. He told her, get in the truck, put your hands behind your back. He helped her into the truck, put the seatbelt, they were going for a drive. He explained to Samantha that he was going to kidnap her for ransom and she would be fine. Key's quote, she kept saying, well, my family doesn't have any money. I, I said, oh, though the way this works is they'll get the money, so you don't need to worry about that. I'm going to take care of all that, but you, you need to do what I say. After that, it seemed like the more I talked to her, the more she, I mean, I wasn't being mean or anything. I wasn't scaring her at that point. I was trying, you know, to seem like a normal person. A normal person. You know, a normal person that kidnaps you from your kiosk, your work. Which indicated that he had done this before. By using that language. Keys drives out of the parking lot. He notices that her belt wasn't secure. Uh, There's no electronic bells on his truck, so if she was able to twist free and jump out the passenger door, there wouldn't be much he could do. Um, as he pulled up to a red light, just as he had left the IHOP parking lot, a police car pulled right up next to Samantha at them at the red light. You know, this would be now. Key stated he, that he picked this part of town, but part of Anchorage that night because there's a huge festival across town, and he knew that a lot of the police would be across there. But out of all, you know, here's a police officer sitting right next to the truck. Which would she have been able to to signal? Probably not. 
If she started screaming, banging her head against the window, I mean, could she have even gotten their attention, or would it just... She should have done it anyway, because she should have known the end. The fire, her fate was sealed. But she believed him. He just wanted the money, and he'd release her. So... Keyes was assessing his risk. I think he knew he'd made a mistake. But the thing is, is, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Light turns green, they pull off. They're, they're gone. That'd be our last chance of anybody coming by to save her. Uh, he had his cell phone out, had the battery out of it, uh, drove to a park. Keyes uh, said he drove to Lynn Airy. Uh, well, Bell, Agent Bell says Lynn Airy, and Keyes says, yeah, Lynn Airy, did someone tell you that? Keyes wanted to know how Bell knew that. Uh, he needed a moment, said, uh, he decided not to answer, said, what, what would matter to Keyes either way? So he repeated the question to buy some time. Did somebody tell me that? Yeah. What would matter is that if, Keys catches him lying, he'd, he'd lose any leverage. Keys comes up and says, I was just wondering if anybody saw us down there because I was down there for a while, the lower park in Lynn Airy. Down by the baseball fields? Yeah. So, Keys had noticed several people in silhouette shouldering, ski equipment, running around, things like that. Uh, this was the last I lied. This was the last opportunity for Samantha to escape, but once she didn't do anything in front of the police, basically he knew she wasn't going to. She was going to go along with him. She was going to obey. So the cross-country skiers load their stuff up and move on after uh, a few minutes of waiting, make sure they didn't double back. Uh, open the back door, clear out of his tools, the back seat, put them in the truck bed. He covered the seat with drop cloths, tucking them securely. As he worked, kept his eye on Samantha, he noticed her trembling. Are you cold, Keyes asked. She said she was. Keyes walked over to her, quickly looped a bunch of zip ties around each other the, the way kids make chains out of construction paper to make the longer restraints to secure Samantha's wrist to her seatbelt. He told her to lay down in the back seat and covered her in drop cloths. Got back in the driver's seat, thought about what to do next. His daughter was probably asleep, but Kimberly was a night out. It was closing on 11 p.m. He said, that's when I realized I had a lot to do, not very much time to do it. He needed a phone to make his ransom demand. Keys decided to drive to Walmart to buy a burner, which he figured would be untraceable. But once he pulled to the parking lot, his head second thoughts, because there was a surprising number of cars parked outside for this time of night, and surveillance cameras were everywhere. And Keys remembered that Walmart had some of the best in the country. Another clue for Bell, Keys not only knew what he was doing, he was probably an expert. Oddly, Keyes realized a better option might be returning to the kiosk and grabbing Samantha's phone. As it was, he'd forgotten to lock the kiosk door, and he went back to do that. It might give him a greater head start. It would look like Samantha had locked up and left on her own. So Keyes made the 10-minute drive back to Tudor Road, parking behind the Alaska Club. He saw no cars, no people. I was sure she was going to get away at that point. Even though I had her tied her up pretty good, Keyes said, I was like, I'm only going to be gone a couple minutes. 
if I come back and it looks like you've been trying anything, you know, it's not, it's not going to be, I'm not going to be happy. He had her basically under his spell, under his controls. It was under, it was crippling fear is what it was. She was paralyzed by fear from this fucking bastard. Excuse my language. I'm sorry. I'm trying to do better with that. And, and, and Payne and Bell picked up on it because they recognized Keith's threat as, as the mind control of an experienced criminal. Payne had learned it at Quantico and heard variations in countless confessions. You'll regret it. I'll hurt you. It's never I'll kill you. And that gives the victims hope. The best criminal always leaves that window open because it makes manipulating and controlling someone so much easier. And the victims often believe fatality that they'll be let go. Or they believe that they'll be let go. They don't believe they'll be killed. They don't believe that I guess it's hard for them to wrap their mind around someone doing to them something that they can't even comprehend in their own head. I don't even know. Someone goes to kidnap you. Someone goes to put you in a car. Never go to that secondary location. Take your bullet right there at the IHOP. That's what I would have done. So what I'm saying is the the... The manipulation's never fatal. It's like, it's never, I'll kill you. It's always, I'll hurt you. Which is stating that it gives them hope of being of being let go. So he goes back up to the kiosk, finds their cell phone, uh, picks up the, the zip ties he dropped, uh, grabs Samantha's car keys, uh, which... They realize now this was another crushing blow because if someone at the Alaska or the Anchorage Police Department or the FBI had watched the surveillance video all the way through, they would have known without a doubt that Samantha Koenig had been kidnapped. Keys returned not once but twice without Samantha. This would have weakened the theory that Samantha had staged her own kidnapping. In fact, if you watch this surveillance video, APD eventually... They made it public. Uh, you can see in the final moments as Keys and Samantha leave that Samantha's face is fully visible, eyes glistening with tears, her hand over her mouth in terror. Keys makes sure Samantha's still under the tarp. She's fine. Still there. Crippled with fear. He checked her cell phone. It's a flip phone. Uh, and she was telling the truth about not having any money. So Keith sends out a few messages to the boyfriend. Stating that Samantha's not coming home. She's not going to be around. So... Samantha had to use the restroom. Keys thought it would be a ploy. But he couldn't risk an accident in his truck. Her DNA would be everywhere. 
pulled into Earthquakes, Earthquake Park's vast, empty lot, edge of town, near the water, 15 minutes from the kiosk, grabbed some rope, tied it around her neck, cut the binds to the seatbelt, walked out in the grass, nothing she could hide behind, she went to the restroom. Key states, I let her out, and by that time, you know, we were smoking cigars and stuff, I mean. Fielder says, who was smoking? Both of us, Key said. I mean, we were sharing. Sharing. This was, this terminology was, was the only way a bound Samantha could have been smoking was if Keys held the cigar for her. And I mean, how terrifying to be bound up at night, no one giving you a second look, a large stranger wielding a lit cigar in your face. If this man would kidnap you and hold you for ransom and tie you up and make you pee outside like an animal, what was stopping him from burning you? Just crazy. It was... Well, Phil just wanted to know when when that was. And Keith says, well, it was from the time of Lynn Airy on. I mean, she kept trying to talk to me. You know, I had to tell her to shut up a few times, but I was still being nice about it. So after the earthquake part, we were out there for a few minutes. There were other people out there. Other people. I lied to you again. This is the sixth time that Keys mentioned potential witnesses. Suspicious driver parked near the kiosk. The passerbys as Keys walked Samantha across Tudor Road. Uh, the people in the Chevy Suburban in front of the pickup near IHOP. The cops at the traffic light. The skiers at Lynn Airy Park. And now this. Brazen doesn't begin to describe Israel Keys. One more surprise coming. He hadn't planned for, for such a long night, he was running out of gas. Keys, quote, I realized my truck, the empty line had been on for, I, I don't know, I was like, boy, that would be great, run out of gas in the middle of nowhere with all this going on. So, so yeah, just pulled right into the Tessero, already, had already changed. I kept changing jackets. I, I had the dark jacket, and I had my other jacket, just in case it ever came up. So like I told you, he sent text messages to people who'd been calling Samantha's phone, a boyfriend or boss. He wrote as though Samantha was extremely pissed off. He pulled the battery out of the phone so they couldn't tra trace it. Finally, Keys makes it into his driveway. Around midnight now, freezing cold. Uh... He's left her in the back of the truck as he went inside to situate his home. Uh, he got out of the truck. Of course, Samantha had no idea where she was. She might have heard dogs barking. She didn't know if there were people around. Uh, there were people feet away. She remained quiet as the truck lurched up and down from side to side. He's putting the ladder rack back on in the toolbox he'd removed earlier. No neighbor suspected anything. It was Alaska. Nobody was, I mean, you know, if Keys wanted to do manual labor in the middle of the night, I mean, no big deal. It's no one's business, no one's business but your own. It's sad, though, that she was in her mind. I mean, I know she was, can you imagine the terror? But she was so paralyzed with that fear 
that she didn't even really make a break for it after that one type of running. And she had several opportunities to do so. That's sad. No one knows what they would do in a situation like that. A person could believe, yes, if I follow what he, oh yes, he'll let me go. He just wants money. He's being nice. He just wants money. He would have already hurt me by now if he wanted to rape me or kill me. It's sad. But now Keyes has got Samantha at his home. He's got a heater. Well, I want to quote Keyes here. Now, according to the officers, basically there was only so much so much detail Keyes was willing to give, but what he would say was more than really they could have hoped for. In fact, it was everything. What was I thinking? Because the shed was already set up. I had two heaters going in there. I had a big tarp, like a 9 by 12 tarp, laid out on the floor. And there was a radio in there and stuff. And so, yeah, I guess it was probably between 1 and 2 that I finally got the nerve to, like, get her out of the truck and walk her over into the... I had her blindfolded then because, you know, I was telling her, like, don't try to see anything because we've got to get this thing worked out. And now Samantha was inside the shed. Keys, quote, I was telling her, I'll make you comfortable. You just sit here. But I'm going to have this police scanner on me, so if I hear reports of screaming from this neighborhood or anything, any disturbance from over here, I'm going to be back. And uh, we'll be back here before the cops get here. And, of course, Samantha had every reason to believe him. He turned his radio way up, heavy metal drowning, any noise that, that, that she could possibly make. And Key states, quote, you know, she was very cooperative. She didn't seem like she was going to try anything. I gave her, like, a five-gallon bucket for her to pee in and then dumped that out into the trailer and then stuck it back in the shed so she'd have something to sit on and then took a piece of rope and put it around her neck and screwed it to the wall on both sides. And I, I think, uh, I think, and I think changed her clothes. But it was unclear that they think it might be unclear whether a court reporter mistakenly wrote changed instead of chained or whether Keyes had changed something Samantha was wearing. Keys meticulous so far, probably figured that uh, Snow would wash Samantha's DNA now all over his trailer anyway. He moved her hands so they were in front so they could smoke and stuff, and yeah, just told her to chill out. So, next, he told Samantha to give him her home address and the location and description of the truck she uh, shared with Dwayne. The ATM card they shared, Samantha told Keyes, was in the truck, either in the glove box or tucked into a visor. Keyes went back inside the house and pulled up Samantha's address on MapQuest. He checked on Kimberly, finally asleep. It was 2.30 a.m. In just two and a half hours, Keyes and his daughter needed to leave. Keyes states, then I took Kimberly's car, parked three or four blocks away from where Samantha's truck was, and walked over. Used the key to open the door, and the car... The car was right the car was right where she said it would be and I was just locking up the truck. Sorry, the card was where she said it would be 
and I was just locking the truck up, and some guy came out. Obviously, knew something was up right away. This was Dwayne, and this lined up perfectly with what he had told Detective Dahl about the strange figure in Samantha's truck. Uh, according to Keyes, Samantha had spent about three hours being dragged all over Anchorage, seen by at least 20 people, possibly included two police officers. She had a real chance at that point. Now, Keyes was facing off with her boyfriend. They both stood there for a moment, Dwayne frozen, Keyes waiting to see what Dwayne might do. Keyes had a knife, and he'd use it. He'd have killed him. Suddenly, Dwayne turned and ran back inside the house. Was it fear? Had Dwayne somehow felt threatened? Ezra Keyes now had the ATM card in hand, tore down the street, and hid behind a snowbank. No one came back outside. He jumped into Kimberly's car and drove off. He's going to the ATM to test the card and the pen. He realized he made another mistake. He hadn't written down the pin number Samantha had given him, and he he'd forgot it, so he had to go back to the shed, get the pin number. Keep Samantha calm. Risk exposure for the 13th time that night. The kiosk, the escape attempt on Tudor, the IHOP, the cops in the patrol car, Lynn Airy Park, the skiers, the gas station, the trip back inside the kiosk, twice, earthquake park. Taking Samantha out of his truck, in his driveway, into the shed, the confrontation with Dwayne, now this. And the fact that the clock was ticking, 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 ticking. There was 94 cents in their account. 94 cents. But that wasn't the issue. He wasn't after the card at that point. Fieldus, what was you after? Keys, that was just a bonus. Filled us bonus to what? Keys. The whole thing. If I could eventually get some money out of the card, then that was the plan. Sounds like there was something more to the story. Oh, yeah. There's a lot more to the story. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to tell the whole story today, though. Okay, well, when you left for your cruise, you got that cab. We know when you called that cab. Keys called for a ride at 5 a.m. sharp. By the time... That he had tested the ATM card and returned to the shed. It was around 3 a.m. I mean, what could he have possibly done with Samantha? Leaving behind no evidence of any kind. In the hour he had left before showering, changing clothes, waking his daughter, feeding her breakfast, making sure she was packed for their two-week-long trip, getting to the airport with his girlfriend staying behind. <laughs> her not knowing a thing. Key states, yeah, I was running late. Fieldus, where was where was Samantha when you left in the cab? She was in the shed. Was she alive? Yeah. I'm about to save that story for later. The shift now was to the ransom note with the photo of Samantha and the proof of life copy of the Anchorage Daily News dated February 13, 2012. Was she alive in this photo? Nope. Was she alive when you got back from your trip on the morning of February 18th? Nope. Was she alive when you left? That would seem like an obvious question. She So she, she was alive? Uh, Steve Payne and Belle were pulling their hair out at this time. Uh, the minute that the, the ransom note came in, 
Bell basically said it out loud, Samantha's dead. And no one else on Payne's team wanted to believe it. Bell would have uh, undercut Keyes with his, his, well, Bell would have led the investigation a lot better than what failed us. He would have never have presumed the, uh, presumed the answer to something he didn't know for sure. But Kevin failed us. The prosecutor wouldn't be stopped. So she was alive. Keys, huh? She was alive when I left? No. Okay, but what did you do to her? <laughs> this exchange, as small as it may seem, was devastating. Keys was newly defiant. He could run this room now and in the future. Payne and Bell knew it. This confession, a victory on paper, could ultimately set them way back. Who knew what the consequences would even be? And at this point, even Frank Russo, Kevin Fieldus's investigator, even tried to help. Keys, I'll tell you the whole story, but I might not tell it right now. Is there a reason you don't want to tell it now? Russo says. Yeah, Keys says. Russo, can you tell us what that is? I already know who I want to tell the story to. Who's that? What's her name? Mickey, the lead detective. Why do you wanna why do you wanna specifically tell her? Because that's the way I am. So the language fieldist was using, like, tell me this and I need to know. Basically if basically give keys all the all the control. Uh you know, fieldist would say like that's that's fine, we understand you're not going to tell us everything, but one thing I do need to know before I leave here today is how you killed her. Why? Well, that's what we that's one of the things we agreed on, right? Well, that wasn't a good reason. They had no leverage. No leverage at all. Because Keith says, no, I, I mean, it really doesn't matter how it happened. I'm, I'm saying that, yes, I was responsible, and yes, I told you where she is. Okay, so are you responsible for what? I need you to tell me, Keys. For her being deceased at this moment, yes. So you killed her, yes. So you want to tell Mickey, Detective Dahl. I'll tell her the rest of the details if you want to know. If you want to know all of them. So in other words, what you did to her besides just killing her. I'll tell you everything you want to know. I'll give it blow by blow if you want. Well, can you give us a little idea of what you want to tell her? Felda says, keys. Why? No. You want to just tell us the manner of death without giving us any details? No. Keys had one other demand. Didn't want his girlfriend's house torn apart anymore. The investigators need to come to him and ask permission to search it. Maybe he would let them. And he didn't want them talking to Kimberly ever. He didn't care if they believed him. She had nothing to do with it. Keys states, I don't want to hear about you questioning her again. You know, like I say, obviously you have no reason to trust me. But I can tell you right now that there is no one who knows me or who has ever known me, who knows anything about me, really. I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows about me, what I'm telling you, the kinds of things I'm telling you, is me. Russo, how long have you been two different people? Keys, a long time. 14 years. We'll be right back.
I look at these notes, I look at this book, and I realize that, okay, first off, I'm congested, I'm sick, not sick, but I can't hardly breathe, so I apologize for the way it sounds. And I realize that I don't know that I'm going to get through. I don't like to make these things extremely long, like more than an hour. And it's just, and I don't want to skip some of this information because I feel like that it's all relevant to me because I think that it's, it's information that I didn't, I didn't know. And I've seen a lot of things, a lot of programs. I read a lot of things on Israel Keys. And I want to cover as much of this as I can. So I'm going to apologize. I'm going to continue. And we might add a few more episodes. So Mickey Doll is now in Anchorage. Uh, Sunday, April the 1st. Uh, for the second time in three weeks, she found herself face-to-face with Israel Keys. This is the detective he had to talk to. Now, Steve Payne, this was an unexpected assist. Uh, as much as he and Doll clashed, her presence, something of a, com- a command performance, would make this interrogation a win for law enforcement. She might neutralize Fieldus and maybe even humble him. And more important, she would get those details that Israel Keys had. And, and Mickey Doll, she knew how to play the game. So Fieldus opened by reading Keys' rights, but instead of handing, handing the, the lead off to Doll, he, he, he segued right into his questioning. Fieldus, is there a place you'd like to begin, or is there, well, uh, you're going to get the abridged version. Okay, what does that mean? I'm going to leave out stuff. And why is that? There's too many, there's too many people in here. Okay, so what is that about? Uh, there being too many people? Uh-huh. Uh, some of the stuff is very personal to me. Sure, understand. And, uh, yeah, hard to describe. But I don't feel comfortable telling it to a lot of people, so it's up to you. And it was a no-brainer. A pain, I thought. Leave keys with Daw, uh, Kurtner, and maybe Bale, if that was okay. I mean, whether this guy was getting off on telling his story to a stunning, young, beautiful detective, or whether he really required some form of, you know, privacy, it didn't matter. They needed the details. So, Fieldus, why don't we do this? Since we don't know where we're headed, uh, I don't know where we're headed, Israel, only you know that, right? So, let's start and see where we end up, okay? Fieldus, he wasn't leaving that room without a fight. So... Daw takes a moment to work her way in. Uh, it wouldn't be the the kind of hardcore sanctimonious interrogation that you know you see on TV. She would just play humble, build rapport. She would apologize for interrupting. Uh, she was doing her job, a, a damn good one. Uh, She had began by telling Keys that even though she'd listened to yesterday's interview over the phone, the connection was poor, and most of the voices sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, and she wasn't up to speed and needed his help. So Dahl states, I'm not really sure if you want me to ask you questions, or if you if you have questions, that's fine. That's what Keys said. So she had basically laid the, new, the groundwork for a new dynamic, one that recalled the relationship of the old if you remember the movie Silence of the Lambs um, the, the search of, of Kimberly and Key's home two weeks back had yielded scores of books fiction and nonfiction about serial killers 
Those days, Keys went uh, missing in Texas were now even deeper concern, and gives uh, and given what they now know about Samantha's abduction, it was clear that Keys had done this before. How many times? If Samantha wasn't his first victim, in fact, let's see. She, if Samantha wasn't his first victim, was she? No, she was not his first victim. In fact, thank God it'll be his last. He'd said he'd been two different people for 14 years, and there was a lot more he had to say. Um, he was a serial killer, and they were just now getting to absorb that. Um, so back to the question, the interrogation. Uh, first question was pointed not about Samantha but about Key's daughter who had been in Texas with his mother Payne uh, of course they knew that that was a soft spot for Key's child uh, when we spoke in Texas and it might be completely wrong and if I'm completely off base tell me but I got the distinct impression that you didn't want her the daughter to be raised by your mom very perceptive is that something you're concerned about not anymore Okay, sure. Well, I won't waste any more time about it, like I said. Like I said, subtle, perfect. Dahl had clearly listened closely to the confession because she picked up and mirrored one of Key's verbal tactics. Like I say, she was building rapport. Dahl, I don't really know where you guys left off and why there were some things you only wanted to talk to me about, uh, so I don't know what questions to ask. Keys, you don't have to ask. Like I say, I'll give you a detailed account of everything that happened. If you want a blow-by-blow blow account, then I won't do it. But, if, but you know, like like what I was thinking or what was said between her and I, the stuff stays with me unless there's fewer people in the room. How many people you, at least your attorney has to stay? Well, now, let's let's just start with the abridged version, then we can go from there. <laughs> Field us. Gripping that damn conference table with the white fingertips, it was clear that the case agent should have done whatever it took to keep him out of that room from the beginning. The way his keys talked to Phyllis was was different than the way he talked to Dahl. She she wanted she he wanted to help. <laughs> he referenced their first meeting in Texas. You've got your monster, he said. It was almost like he was proud of her. Phyllis, he wanted to dominate and humiliate. Key states, well, before I go into anything, some of the details, regardless of which version I tell you, are going to be very graphic, and I don't want to hear about them being on the media. I don't imagine that you're going to want them on the media either. At least I can't imagine why. So, you know, I'm assuming that this video is just for your review or someone else's review. You got to talk to me about that because I'm, I'm the lawyer on the case, so go ahead. <laughs> which was, God almighty. This is exactly why Keyes shouldn't be talking to Fieldus, but Keyes didn't know that. The investigators assured Keyes that he, they would keep all the details from the press, including the extent of Samantha's captivity and the location of her remains. So, Keyes was back in the shed. On the floor, there was a tarp and a foam mat and a sleeping, uh, not a sleeping bag really, but like a fleece sleeping bag of, bag of sorts. Did you put the tarp down to catch any blood? 
No, just to keep anything from transferring to the shed. All right, gotcha. Now, Keyes had prepped the shed a couple days earlier. He had no specific plan or person in mind. He thought, though, he'd been looking at the Huffman area because it was full of coffee stands that were open late in isolated areas staffed by teenage girls, almost all of whom were alone. That night, he'd come up on Samantha. He liked the look of her, and he went ahead. Even, I guess you could say, against my better judgment. He had thought about waiting for whoever was going to pick her up, a boyfriend, as he had correctly guessed, and taking both of them, decided not to risk it. After breaking into Samantha's truck, stealing her ATM card, and testing the PIN number at a local machine, he returned home. He went into the kitchen, poured a glass of wine for himself, and water for Samantha. Then he returned to the shed. Samantha was remarkably composed. She asked if everything was working out. Did you reach my dad, she asked. Yeah, Keith told her. It's fine. It's sad. Breaks my heart. She should have gutted that fool at the damn kiosk. He knelt down, unscrewed the rope from the wall. He cut her cable ties. He knew what he was doing, igniting the last spark of hope, letting her think he'd be getting the ransom money while untying her, allowing her to think that surely this was the end, that as he had promised all night, he'd be letting her go. He would not be letting her go. Keys restrained Samantha again, this time in a more complicated way by using ropes rather than cable ties. She knew at that point, Keys said, he left the shed, checked on Kimberly. She was awake. Now, this was different from what Keyes had said yesterday in a version. He had wanted to wait until Kimberly had gone to sleep, but what was going on? Did Keyes really act alone? The timeline was insisting on on him doing so, but they still didn't know. Keyes returns to the shed. Space heaters had pushed the temperature inside to 90 degrees. Deafening heavy metal shook the walls. The smell of smoke and urine and sweat permeated. At this point, Keith says he raped Samantha twice. He said it took a while, maybe two or three songs on the radio. So what is that, 12 minutes? Shit. He's a fool. When he was done, he stood above her, naked. Samantha asked if he was going to kill her. She tried to talk him out of it. Her fortitude was remarkable, Keith said. Admirable. But it left him unmoved. Keys. Then uh, I put my leather gloves on. Doll. Why did you put your leather gloves on and why not rubber gloves? Because it's hard to strangle someone. I knew I knew from the minute she walked out of that coffee stand she wasn't she wasn't gonna live. She never made a sound. How long did it take her to die? It was taking, I mean, it always, it's hard to tell when um, it's taking a while. I remember thinking, I still have to shower anyway. I'm not going to tell all the part, but um, why? I stabbed her once right below her right shoulder blade in her back, and it wasn't going very deep. I'm not going to go into that, but anyway, she. I didn't really stab her to make or die faster or anything. It was something else. But uh, I took, did you stab her because you were still attracted to her? 
No, I'm not going to go into that. I finished my wine and put my pants on and went back into the house and took a shower. Then he woke his daughter, and while she got ready, Keys returned to the shed yet again. Space heaters had been left on to slow rigor mortis. He rolled Samantha's body in a tarp, opened up his lower cabinets, hid her remains, turned off the heaters, double-locked the shed, and called a cab. Now, if you notice in some of that conversation that Keys was having with Dahl, he says right there, and she says, he says, then I put my leather gloves on. She says, why did you put leather gloves on and why not rubber? And in his comment, he says, because it's hard work to strangle somebody. That says, I've done it before. He says, I knew, I knew from the minute she walked out of that coffee stand, she wasn't, she wasn't going to live. How long did it take her to die? He says it was taking, I mean, it always, another comment that he's done it before, it's always, it's it's hard to tell when. when uh. So his words tell that he is strangled before. So now, he's got Samantha Koenig's body in his um, cabinet. Heaters are off. The shed's double padlocked. And Phil just wants to know what his plan was. You were getting on a plane and her body was in your shed? What were you thinking? Keys, I was thinking it was 20 degrees outside and I didn't have anything to worry about. Were you worried about getting caught? No. Why not? Partly because it's Anchorage. I'd been listening to the police scanner and a lot recently and just kind of felt like by the time anybody figured out what had actually happened... The trail would already be cold, and even if they had pictures of my truck, they wouldn't know whose truck it was. They wouldn't have tire tracks. They wouldn't have forensic evidence. They wouldn't have shoe prints. They certainly wouldn't have fingerprints or DNA or anything, so I didn't worry about it. This was sobering, and if the investigators were honest with themselves, more than a little embarrassing, Keyes was right. He had predicted their response, or really lack thereof. To commit a crime of this magnitude, to drive around with a missing teenage girl for three hours with plenty of witnesses and not worry about getting caught because it's Anchorage, that was a damning indictment of the police department. And it was true. James Koenig knew it. The hundreds of people who showed up for Samantha's candlelit vigil knew it too. If the media ever heard this, all of Alaska would know it. This confession would never be logged with the court or documented anywhere. It would be kept hidden for years. That morning, aware only that the FBI had a suspect in custody, James had posted another plea on Facebook. Now that it's getting warmer, and the snow's melting. Please keep your eyes open for anything that might be out of place. Check your surroundings. You just never know where that one lead might come from to bring our Samantha home. We'll be right back. Sounds like shit. 
probably banging your head or giving me a bad review. Oh yeah, give me let me get a review, a good one. Let me get a five star Apple rating, please. Or send me an email, duhweeklypodcast at gmail.com. Send me a voicemail on Anchor. Support the show on Anchor. Uh, go to Apple, go to Podbean, go to iHeart, go to Spotify, wherever. So, there's so much information in that I want to share that I'm going to probably stretch out a few bonus episodes just because it's like, I don't want to skip over some of this. It's, in, it's I hate using that word. Inter- Nothing is interesting about a murdering piece of shit like Israel Keys. But I think the more we know about the story, the more we know about him, the better we will be. So, basically... What has happened is Israel Keys left Samantha Koning in his shed while he was gone on his cruise. Steve Payne was interested in some information concerning the ransom note. Um, we're going to cover a little bit on the ransom note, and then it's a wrap. Uh, hopefully... The bonus episode, we can do the recovery of Samantha's body. Then we could go into Bill and Lorraine uh, Collier. Well, I think it's, that's right, yeah. Uh, and then, Israel Keys travel timeline. Man, that should be a wrap on Israel Keys. Um, Israel returns to Anchorage February 18th. Uh, kept checking the weather, making sure it was still cold, but he knew it was getting warmer. Okay, so he went to the shed. Uh, Kimberly was still gone. She had, was traveling in the lower 48 until the 22nd, so he had about four days. He waited until Monday, the 21st, after his daughter went to school. I began taking the shed apart from the inside. He dismantled cabinets, shelving, lights. He worked around Samantha's remains still in the lower cabinet, and he had chopped everything he'd ripped out of the shed into firewood. He rolled Samantha's body, tightly cocooned in a foam mat, sleeping bag and tarp, out of the cabinet and onto a piece of visqueen. The sleeping bag she had been on, he said, was pretty much soaked with blood. Uh, he contradicted himself. He, you know, characterized Samantha's stab wound as minimal. Um, Keys took everything Samantha had been wrapped in, cut it all up, tossed it to a, a double-layer contractor bag. The clothes he wore that night, the shoes, uh, would get burned or go into the landfill. Uh, took her purse, rifled through it, tossing everything aside except the cell phone, a small amount of change. Took the coins and mixed them with his own jar. I mean, why bother with that? Why take the coins from her purse? Um... Key says, I was probably really paranoid, but I was thinking, like, technically, like, there could be DNA. Uh, then Doll says, did you braid her hair? Key says, not right away. After his daughter got back from school, did her homework, had dinner, gone to bed, Keys built a fire in the living room fireplace about 1 or 2 a.m., now February 22nd. He burned the tarp and everything Samantha had touched. Back in the shed, Keys took a large piece of plastic and tacked it all along the floor and walls, which he had scrubbed earlier with a bleach-filled, uh, with bleach-filled grout sponge. 
To keep the surface area of the floor unobstructed, he'd hung Samantha's body up, lifting her arms above her head, tying rope around her wrist, screwing the rope into the wall. Doll, what happened next? Well, this is where you get the abridged version. Let's just say uh, I thawed her out and uh, had a table made in the shed at that point. After you thawed her out, was she still, was she not rigid? No, 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 she was very floppy. What did you do? Well, I, I, would, I wouldn't tell you this part except you're going to find out anyway. So, why wouldn't you tell us if you're going to, if we're going to, well, I told you the stuff is, find out. Stuff is private. There's too many people in here, but uh, I had sex with her, her corpse, and uh, you know she was warm, and I guess I lost track of time. There's nothing that monster wouldn't do. Of course, it was morning now, and his daughter came looking for him, knocking on the shed door. Keys. I said, you know, I'll be out in a minute. Go back inside and eat your breakfast. And because uh, she was, I mean, at that point, anytime I opened the door, she was like right there. And he laughed softly in retelling that. He cleaned himself up, went and got his daughter ready for school, leaving Samantha's body in the shed all day. He had a checklist. Now, Kimberly was getting back the next day. He had a lot to do. The ransom note was next. Keys picked up his daughter from school that afternoon. Took her to the local Target where he bought a Polaroid camera. To his frustration, stored it in stock-matching film. He had to wait until after homework and dinner. So once his daughter was asleep, he left her alone in the house and made an hour-long drive to Target in Wasilla. Now at some point, he bought a big foam sled, tote bags at Home Depot, carbon ribbon, and paper for typewriter he had found at Goodwill. A sewing kit, a 10-pound fishing line, he pulled a copy of the Anchorage Daily News dated February 13, 2012 from a dumpster behind Carr's supermarket. Now, why'd you pick up the 13th? Because I wasn't in Anchorage on the 13th. And yes, yeah, so once I had all that stuff, I really can't remember, but I know it took me all night to do it. To do what? All night to get the makeup done. Aside from the cell phone and ATM card, Keys had saved the makeup Samantha kept in her handbag. He bought more at Walmart and also used makeup that Kimberly had left stashed in her garage. It seemed another day had gone by, and Kimberly was home for sure now. So, he waited late until one night. Uh, he, he says he spent hours trying to position her body for that ransom photo, but he, he says the biggest challenge was her face. Uh, Samantha's muscles had gone slack, and no amount of makeup was going to give her an expression. So, you know, she'd been dead for 21 days. So Keys, quote, that's when I kind of gave up on, like, the mouth and stuff. I just uh, decided to tape it. I taped it so that, you know, it looked like her face had some texture to it, I guess. And then I was still having problems with her eyes or her forehead, you know, because there was no expression. And uh, I tried super glue. That didn't work. And so I took the needles that I had. I had a... Big curved needle. Uh, I forget what they call it, but I had that. And then I had that 10-pound fishing uh, test line, and I, I sewed, uh, took the needle and went down through her uh, brow, like uh, right between her eyebrow and uh, and down uh, along her nose cartilage and under the skin and uh, went back up along the same path and did it again and then pulled it tight to make it look like she was squeezing her eyes shut. And then I took a test picture 
just to kind of see what it was going to look like. And I think I put a little more makeup on her after that, and I already had her hair braided at that point. Uh, where did you put the makeup on her? Everywhere. I had to put foundation. Like every part you see in that picture has foundation on it, two or three different kinds. Why did you do that? Well, she didn't look good. I mean, her skin, you could see it. Start to see the blood under the skin. And, uh, I mean, she was still in good shape, but, you know, she definitely didn't look alive. Keith said it took between three and five hours to get the makeup done. Then he began taking test pictures, which was also more difficult than he anticipated. He needed to hold Samantha's head up. Keith's quote, I think it took about five or six pictures before I finally had one that showed what I wanted. Did you cut the corner off? Yeah, well, I cut the edges off the whole photograph. At first, I was thinking of giving the Polaroid and have the note separate. And then I decided it would be harder for you to figure out if I scanned the picture with a printer, not through the computer, but just with the scanner onto the paper. And that way, you probably wouldn't know for sure that it was a Polaroid. So, yeah, that's what I did. Did you cut the corner off because it showed the mark on your arm? Well, it wasn't so much the brand that was showing, but I have some moles on my arm, and I was, it looked, I looked at it pretty careful, and I, yeah, I guess I was just thinking that it might show something. I was thinking to keep a minimum amount of my arm in there and get the message across. Why did you go all, through all the trouble to do this? You did a lot of work. Uh, well, put it this way. I mean, it's obvious why I did it. I did it. The bottom line was to get money out of it. But at the same time, it's not like I didn't want to do it. Which Keynes had told them opposite. So he was contradicting in some some places, but for the most part, he was telling the truth. You know, he's in it for the money, but the money was just a bonus. But yet he was poor enough to warn a public defender. Uh, one of his last trips, the flight and the cruise with his daughter, it had been expensive, and it would have it would take time to go through his finances, but obviously he was struggling. How could this elaborate scheme not in part be about money? Surely. Was it? Was it, was he, did he need the money? Was it about the chase, the, 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 the score itself, the actions, the adrenaline? I don't know. Dahl wanted to know how he came up on 30000 Key said he began following media coverage of her disappearance and was astonished by how much money was raised. Uh, that's why he saved only Samantha's cell phone and ATM card to demand money and retrieve it. He told them he had uh, no idea his movements could be tracked by using that card, which was hard to believe. He had been scrupulous. He really didn't know the ATM cards could be tracked. He swore he didn't, but... They're not buying it. I, I don't know, though. I think he was not so much that he didn't think they could be tracked, but I don't think he was expecting them to track it in real time. Maybe find out a few days later when the, you know, the transactions come in. But I, I definitely don't think he was expecting him to expecting them to track it in real time. Um. Uh, so. Kimberly's back uh, now. Her friend Kevin is in the house. He's a house guest. And Keys need to he needs to remove Samantha's body. The weather was getting warmer. There was no way he could contain the smell. And he definitely couldn't risk a wild animal demolishing the shed. He had to move fast. 
so let's do a quote from Keys here concerning this ransom note. Uh, Key states, I remember that there was a lot going on, but there was one day that there was nobody around in the house. I brought the typewriter to the house, and it didn't take me that long. I opened the pack of computer paper. I got it, put the typewriter, uh, topped up one draft of the ransom note, stuck it in the printer. I hit copy of the picture, latex, latex gloves on the whole time I was typing it. Never touched the paper or anything. Uh, Russo, so you purposely misspelled stuff in the ransom note? keys. I didn't know. I wasn't really that concerned about the wording of it. I had an idea with like the message I wanted to get across. What was with the desert? You said she escaped on Tudor and that was true. Almost escaped on Tudor. That was right. And then you said once in the desert. It was a calculation I had in my head that from the time the picture was taken to the time the ransom note was given was about 10 days. Uh, this too conflicted with what Keys had just said. That he purchased the Cameron film used for the ransom demand two days before Posting the note in the interest of momentum, investigators let him continue. Uh, Key states, I was thinking, make it sound as if she had been sold as a sex slave somewhere in Mexico. That's about how long it would take to drive there from the 13th to get back to Anchorage. Latex gloves still on. Keys put the, puts the ransom note and the photo into one Ziploc baggie. Then he put it into another Ziploc baggie. He tagged, tagged the package to the Connors Bog Park Community Board around 6 a.m. He knew someone would find it. Keys used Kimberly's car that morning and the light snowfall meant fresh tire tracks. He wanted to see the response but knew he'd need to wait. Later that day, after dropping Kimberly and Kevin at a friend's house, he found his opportunity. Most of Anchorage was down at the annual Fur Ronder Winter Festival and Keys practically had run of the town. He drove to the car's parking lot went to the back corner, turned on Samantha's phone. As soon as he sent the text to Dwayne, Keys removed the phone's battery and headed home. It was 7.56 p.m. Keys wasn't sure how much time elapsed, but he got back in Kimberly's car and drove back to the park where, to his satisfaction, he saw a couple patrol cars and a crime scene van. The cops, he said, were extremely low-key. This pleased him. I knew right away that the message had gotten through. So anyway, that's the, the, the ransom note that he puts out for trying to get the $30,000. And basically, it works. I know that in the beginning, um, in the beginning, James Koenig did not want to put the money on there. And so they had come up with an agreement of putting the $5,000 on the card, and in turn, that is what ends up catching Israel Keys is his desire to get access to that money. But it takes a few days for James to uh, to decide to put the money on there, but he does, and it ends up being the right move. And Payne was right. That's that's how you can you know the only way they had to track Israel Keys was through that ATM card. So basically, now Israel Keys has got to dispose of the body. And I don't want to uh, to drag it out into this episode because I know that we can go on too long. It can just be more irritating than anything. But basically it was this. Keys says, you know, she was starting to smell a little bit. So I wanted to keep her, but I didn't 
want to do it right then. I was thinking I could put her out in the backyard and bury her in the snowbank and uh, finish it up later. But then I just decided it was better just to do it, get it done, and figure out some excuse as to what I was doing for three days. So I rolled her off the table and took the table apart, cut up the plywood that was made out of, and burned that, and had a big rolling tote. It wasn't very deep, about five or six inches deep, and that's what I cut her up in. Keys made three trips over three separate days out to Manitouska Lake, always removing the battery and SIM from his own cell phone. He chose daytime because it was less suspicious. One day, Keys walked out to the center of the lake, about 200 yards, dragging a chainsaw, lead weights, a snow shovel, 16 by 30 inch piece of plywood, and some parts of the ice hut, which he pitched the next day. None of this would look unusual in a winter afternoon in Alaska. Still, Keys wasn't taking his chances. I think I had my fishing stuff with me, too, just for appearance. Thought cutting the hole would be easy. He was wrong. It took forever, he said. The chainsaw would not. It kept dying. There was, The ice was 20 inches thick, and Keys was trying to cut a 13-foot by 20-inch, a 13 by 20-inch hole. There were a witness this day. Keys, another man out on the ice fishing. Uh, he said the witness looked at him funny and quizzically. Why do you think, Doll asked. Well, Keys said he had an ice drill right there, <laughs> and it was odd that Keys didn't ask to use it. An Alaska thing, I guess. Cutting the hole, Keys uh, tied twine through two of the lead weights and dropped him down to check the water's depth. He asked Kevin, who worked for Fish and Game for the best the best lakes, lakes for ice fishing, Kevin said Manitouska, 80 feet at its deepest. I think it ended up only being about 40 feet, Keys said, but I figured that was deep enough. So he packed everything back up, covered the hole with plywood, left. On day two, Key said he packed some of Samantha's remains onto tote bags, triple bagging them to contain any blood. He made the drive that morning during the work commute. Not concerned at all he be, could be pulled over or involved in an accident. At the lake, under cover of his ice shack that he built to look like he was ice fishing, Keys removed Samantha's remains from his tote and weighed them. He then weighted them, sorry, then dropped them down the hole he states, basically on the first day, uh, he says dumping the body took about five, five or ten minutes once the ice shack was set up. Then he left to go to a parent-teacher conference for his daughter. How comforting to be cutting a body up one minute, and then the next minute you're at a parent-teacher conference with your daughter. So how did you stay calm enough for that, Fieldus asked. Because, Kevin Fieldus, he has no emotion. He's calm, he's cool, he's collected. My God, he didn't think about it, Keith said. It's a quick meeting. It was just him and the teacher talking about the gifted and talented programs his child was enrolling in. He said it took two more days, purely just logistics. You know, he couldn't have removed Samantha's remains all at once, and he didn't want to create suspicion at the lake. He never saw anyone out there again, just a car parked near his truck on day two or three. He couldn't remember. Only that it was a day that he was submerging remains. So, that was it.
After the last of Samantha's remains sank, Key sat at the edge of the hole and went fishing. So there it was, finally. Payne and his team had their blow-by-blow -blow account of what had happened to Samantha. They knew where she was at. They could bring her home. This case was closed. But Payne knew there was more to come. For one thing, they would have to corroborate as best they could what Keyes had just told them. A confession without a body, without any physical evidence at all, was hardly ideal. What if Keyes recanted, said he lied about some of it, or all of it, claimed an unnamed accomplice, 14 years? The Bureau couldn't risk any more mistakes. They had to find out if Samantha was where Keyes said she was, and they had to find out immediately. This too would be harder than it seems, but they do bring Samantha home and find her. Next episode, I want to talk about the other two victims that are that Israel Keys confessed to killing. I want to go through their confession, and I want to go through the recovery of Samantha's body. Um, then I do want to cover the timeline. Is what is 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 it, not in? I hate that word again. After we cover the confessions of Israel Keys. Then we'll want to go into like a, a timeline of of his travels um, and where he could be and s some crimes that he could be guilty of, uh, different things, surgeries that he had done in Tijuana, Mexico, some different strange behavior, some of his journal writings and things like that. Uh, once again, I want to thank American Predator for the and Maureen Callahan for her beautiful book, The Hunt. For the most meticulous serial killer of the 21st century. I want to thank everybody for listening. I know I sound like shit. I'm sorry. I can't help it. Um, and I know it's it's one of those things. It's like it, as you do this, you want to. What can you do to stand apart? What can you do to be different? What can you do to get people to listen? I want to tell this story. I don't want to read it. I don't want to put it word for word. I want to. I want to have some dialogue with people. I want to. I want a. I really would like to have someone to talk to on the show, and I'm working on that. So we're working on after we're doing some episodes here on, on this book and Israel Keys. Maybe we can do some local stuff. I definitely want to have someone to, to kick some ideas back and forth with. Like, you know, we know Israel Keys has many other victims. You know, how many do they think? How many can they prove? You know, the, from what I, I gathered, there is thousands of pages of documents whether it be his confessions or what or, or whatever it may be what I'm getting at is there is a national security threat attached to this case somehow and a lot of his stuff a lot of the stuff they collect or a lot of stuff they know about him they are not releasing to anyone so I just wonder what who is Israel Keys? What is Israel Keys? Very, very, very strange character. And I'm not even talking about the fact of his serial killings and things like that. To me, there's so much to this case. We'll dive back in next week. Thanks for listening. Have a blessed day. This is Duh.
weekly podcast, True Crime Edition. Thanks, guys. See you.